0: Today's sponsor is Audible.com, which has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free audiobook of your choice at audible.com slash decode.
1: Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher.
0: Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode, and you're listening to Recode Decode. You may know me as the person who invented the listicle, but in my spare time, I do some tech reporting. This is a show about the tech industry, media, politics, and the ways in which they are changing our lives. This week's Red Chair interview is a little different. For this week's episode, Recode editor Peter Kafka sat down with BuzzFeed founder and CEO Jonah Peretti to talk about Peretti's burgeoning media empire. Hi, Peter. Hey,
2: Kara. How you doing? Good. How's so, you your, did... How's your burgeoning media empire? It's
0: ever smaller every day, yeah, which sorry. is my great hope. Um, so, uh, so you talked to... Jonah, what were you trying to get out of this interview?
2: Well, first of all, I want to know why Jonah's getting in the TV business. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but mm-hmm. all these digital media companies, including Vox, are suddenly interested in getting into TV. And to me, that seems a little counterintuitive especially since the TV guys are trying to get out of TV. So we talked a bit about that. And we also had a history lesson, sort of the origins of BuzzFeed, how it pivoted a few times, how someone almost invested who didn't invest. It's, there's some interesting stuff there.
0: And how do you assess BuzzFeed's ascendance right now? Is it is it at the top of its game, or is it overvalued, or how do you how do you talk for, about that? For
2: years, I made the mistake of sort of discounting them. I thought there was sort of the Huffington Post Lite, or Huffington Post 2.0. I thought I'd seen this before, but they're really doing something very interesting and original, and they, they've certainly figured out Facebook and social distribution but then they're also doing real news and, and now lately they've, they've really gotten into video in a big way
0: and so we'll hear all about that
2: we'll hear all about that
0: thanks a lot Peter
2: thank you here at Recode Decode we're talking to Jonah Peretti CEO of BuzzFeed Jonah thanks for joining us thanks for having me we uh, we talked in May on stage uh, about a bunch of different stuff and one of the things we talked about briefly sort of in passing is whether you guys would ever consider going into TV and movies you said ah maybe I don't know maybe maybe we get into television uh a few months later, you guys have announced that just like Fox Media, you've taken some money from NBC Universal. It seems like maybe you are going to get in the movie and TV business. Can you start by just talking about where you think you might go in the movie and TV
3: world? Yeah, it really actually goes back to what we were talking about, even uh, maybe a year ago at South by Southwest last spring. But it last was, spring, time yeah.
2: collapses and yes, accelerates.
3: I don't have very good sense That's of right. time. So we uh, uh, about buzzfeed increasingly becoming a cross-platform media company and and so tv was one of the places tv and film was one of the places where we really had no presence and no expertise and the idea of of creating things that are that that grow online on mobile social on Snapchat, on Facebook, on YouTube, and not being able to extend them TV didn't make much sense. So our focus is to continue to be, to do the things we do best, which is digital, social, mobile, um, being in places where you have a lot of data feedback and can really like learn from, from the work that you're doing and really engage with an audience. But then also to be able to extend to, to TV and film. And so we'd like to have you know 10 or 20 percent of our business be on more traditional platforms in the future.
2: So more traditional <laughs> platforms is a traditional TV show, a traditional movie. It's not a longer video that it shows up on YouTube or Facebook.
3: Yeah, I, I think that you're starting to see a lot of convergence between traditional media and, and the web. And, and so the way media operates in the next few years is going to start to morph and you know, when you look at things like clip shows on TV, they they are kind of internet-y. and when you look at certain things that people are doing online, um, you know, some of Vice's documentaries they look a little more like TV. And so, it, it I, I don't think there's going to be as big a difference between the you know something that is on a traditional TV show and something that's on the web.
2: So I, I can imagine a, a clip show, right, that you guys produced. It's stuff that you stuff you sort of stitch together in short format, and you make a longer show of it. Is that that idea, or would you could you imagine creating? A sitcom or creating
3: a single camera situation comedy? Um, So we already are creating series online. So I think some of the work we do are short clips that can stand on their own and be shared and don't need to be aggregated together into a, a longer linear format. Um, but, you know, if you look at our Snapchat Discover channel, it it is in a way more linear than most things on the web where you start at the beginning and you go through the end and there's an experience and lots of the elements are individual clips. And so in a way that is like a clip show. Could we do something like that on TV? Possibly. Um, could we take some of the series we've been developing with talent in our studio in Los Angeles and have them grow into something that could be on TV? For sure. I think that for us having... Part of that be continue to live digitally is going to be important, though, because that's the way we learn the best. But,
2: but the format is not a stretch. It's not like you guys have to sort of create something from the ground up that you're not already doing. You're saying you're closer there than, than at least I'm giving you credit for in terms of creating traditional sort of length shows and movies.
3: Some of the stuff we're doing is closer, and some of the stuff may be, be partnering with someone who's really good at making TV and doing something very different that is uses RIP in some way but isn't um, necessarily... Something that we would have done on our own, I
2: think it's fascinating that it's two thousand and fifteen and and for obvious reasons, you've got a bunch of traditional media conglomerates, NBC universal among them saying, Oh man, the the millennials have stopped watching our stuff, our ratings have fallen off. we've got to go find this audience that's left us, and so we're going to go to the buzz feeds of the world and help help us they'll, they'll they'll tell us how to get it there um and then you've got folks like yourself saying we'd like to make some traditional TV. This, this format that everyone says is, is dying or dying off, we, we think there's a lot of value there or we think there's more value than people, people realize.
3: I, I think that when you make something great that people love, there's a lot of value for a media company to adapt that for every major platform that has real audience. And TV is one of those. And so so that's really how I think about it. So I I think there's this kind of misconception where people think companies that grow and have success online then want when they grow up want to do television. Graduate to T V. Yeah. Graduate and we television. don't want to graduate to T V. We want to and we have graduated to being really truly global and truly cross platform. And and so we also are modest about what we're good at and have a sense of where we're weak, and making things for television isn't something that we have tons of expertise doing, and so that's partly why we wanted to partner there.
2: So there's obvious upside for you. In addition to NBC Universal's money, right, there's, a, there's distribution channels and the, and the ability to make these things that maybe you couldn't make on your own or at least a place to put them. What do they get out of working with you guys?
3: Well, you should ask them, I guess, what they what they get out of it. We just, What's your we just, operating We've just theory. we've just started we've just started to to work together, so we'll see. I mean, they've invested in us, so that they get upside in our equity. Yep. You know, so that's one obvious thing. Um, and then well, I think we will figure out interesting areas to collaborate. Um, when I you know discussed what the kinds of things we do together with Steve Burke, he was like, "I don't want your team to have to do stuff they don't want to do," and. You know, likewise it doesn't feel like he should tell his team you have to collaborate with BuzzFeed there should be mutual enthusiasm and in our initial meetings we found a lot of areas where there's enthusiasm to do stuff together you
2: had a very brief press release that announced the deal one of the things that struck me was, was they said we're going to collaborate on this, I think it was Ken Larry your chairman said we're going to collaborate on a bunch of things including the Olympics so should we imagine there's going to be BuzzFeed coverage of the luge or the skeleton or any other obscure sports or or
3: what are you thinking about there so the the Olympics have always been a strong area for BuzzFeed uh, and partly it's because so much of of the Olympic coverage is about a, human emotion and human stories and identifying with the the athletes and their life and their struggles and and so the inherently Social focus, of BuzzFeed, of making human stories that people will want to share with each other to, and, and focusing on relationships. and you know so much of the Olympic coverage is about the parents and a kid or, or right people. The race of
2: the competition is for 30 seconds, and the rest of it's all human interest.
3: Yeah, so I, so I think we, we are naturally very strong in, in making media that fits with the Olympics because of our, of social is such a huge and, and, and identity and emotional connection is such a huge part of what we do
2: so um, let me let me switch gears we we'll want to go back back in time um before you were jonah Proudie ceo of buzzfeed you were jonah Proudie who did weird internet pranks and then a lot of people sort of in at least in new york started to know you as the the tech guy at huffington post you were a co-founder there um and i think some people know this story but i think it's interesting you f- co you founded buzzfeed while you were still working at huffington post Right. You still had a full time yeah. job running yeah. tech at HuffPo. What was the thinking there? You were, you were you had a full time job running a big website. Uh why start another project?
3: Part of it was BuzzFeed didn't start as a company. You know, so I started BuzzFeed with with Ken Lair and, and John Johnson. And John Johnson was the founder of iBeam, which is our art and technology nonprofit where I had worked previously. And John is has done a lot in philanthropy and and nonprofits. And so I think on some level, and he was the primary backer of BuzzFeed in the early days, so on some level there wasn't this normal kind of pressure where you have an investor who is focused on you know, getting a big return and pushing a company to, to grow really fast. Like, for me and for, for John, I think the early days of BuzzFeed was more about learning, experimentation, creating a lab.
2: But what, what itch were you trying to scratch, right? For most people, being, were you CTO? What was your formal title at Huffington Post?
3: I actually don't know. even Whatever. Know, you, were, you were in charge yeah. of a
2: big-ass a big website, right? Yeah. Uh, it's a full-time job. What, so what was the thing that you weren't doing there that you wanted to go off and play with at the BuzzFeed project?
3: I, I didn't have the uh, – there wasn't an opportunity to experiment as much. HuffPost fairly quickly knew, had a clear identity and a clear trajectory as a company and was in rapid growth mode. And so much of the energy of HuffPost was getting to that next level, you know, pushing to grow the business. I had previously come from running an R&D lab at a nonprofit and then before that at the MIT Media Lab which were essentially research oriented institutions where I was playing and messing around with ideas. And so that was the issue I needed to describe with BuzzFeed. So BuzzFeed was a small office in Chinatown, very low budget, uh, you know, doesn't didn't cost much to run, funded by John who was really a patron who and, and uh, with the ability to work on figuring out why do people share things? How does media work? What are the changes that are happening in the internet? How is it possible for some student to make something that ends up reaching millions of people through word of mouth without owning a printing press or a broadcast you know, system? How do, what are the underlying mechanisms of all of this stuff? And so that's really what the focus was initially at BuzzFeed. And also we could do experiments and then if we figure things out, I could walk 12 blocks to HuffPost and HuffPost could benefit from that research. So that
2: was the, one of the ideas from the get-go: is you could sort of bring upstream some of this stuff to. To did that ever happen?
3: Yeah, there were things we figured out about SEO, for example, that that really d- Buzzfeed didn't have much use for because we were not really a business, so that, and then we had a small site, and and that that immediately benefited Huffington Post. So definitely there were there were ideas and learnings that Huffington Post was much in a much better position to capitalize on because there was a real business and had real scale.
2: And then when did you think, all right, there's a thing here that I at BuzzFeed that I should turn my attention to and it should become a full time job. and, And this is what I should spend most of my time on or all of my time on.
3: Well, part of it was I I felt I started to feel a little bit guilty that John, my friend, was funding Buzzfeed entirely out of his own pocket, so we did, it wasn't a normal funding round. It was just every month he would cover our costs. Took, That's
2: before Huffington Post had sold.
3: It was before Huffington Post had sold, and, and I took no salary at BuzzFeed for you know the first three years or something, and and would live off part time a part time salary at Huffington Post, and BuzzFeed site started to grow because we were doing experiments. Some of them worked. We started to you know we built a, we launched the site and. Uh, After doing a few other experiments, we launched the site, and then the site started to grow. And then there was employees and people working on it. And so I took a round of funding from outside to be able to actually fund the operation. And once we did that, John didn't have to keep bankrolling the company month to month. And it also meant we had investors and had to take it a little bit more seriously and say, okay, we got to at least double every year. We got to, you know, in terms of our growth, and we have to start thinking a little bit about. And so, revenue. what what
2: what was it that you were telling the investors that BuzzFeed was going to do? I remember talking to you. I remember going to that office in Chinatown, and you're very articulate, but you you had a difficult time sort of explaining to me <laughs> what it was that you were doing. I'm still not sure whether that was intentional or not. But what what did you think the company was going to be when you raised that money and started talking about revenue?
3: I mean, when I don't speak clearly, it's it's really just this this like deep Machiavellian like plan to hide information. No. Smart. Um, no, it was it it was hard to speak clearly because it wasn't clear what we were doing. You know, we were we were more of a lab than we were a company. Even we, though
2: you'd raise money, you were still sort of Well,
3: a lab. we raised money, we raised money um in part um I mean the, the our our primary fundraiser was SoftBank Capital who was um HuffPost's biggest investor. And so partly they invested to keep me at HuffPost because the other term sheet we had um which was from Union Square Ventures um, would have required me to leave HuffPost and just focus entirely on BuzzFeed,
2: and so. So Union Square could have been a, an early BuzzFeed. They better. would have
3: been the first investor, and SoftBank said, "Why don't we continue to work at HuffPost and and you can do both?" Um, and it was, and Union Square was right. The, the idea that I would work at HuffPost and run, be the CEO of a startup um didn't make that much sense but SoftBank was in both companies and so they were okay with it and so it, so so it was a it was a strange arrangement where you know some some of the early BuzzFeed board meetings were people talking about HuffPost the whole time until the board meeting started and then it was like oh and there's this little site and and as you said I wasn't so articulate at explaining what we were doing and so it was like there's a the little site and we don't totally understand it and neither does Jonah <laughs> and um and so and so you know that you know but we managed to always Always grow, and we were growing from a very small base, so no one really noticed. But we always were, you know, doubling every year um, from a very from a very small base because the experiments we were doing and we were, things we were learning um, allowed us to, to to continue to grow. Because at
2: one point there was a, there was like a network idea, and the thing was you were going to sort of help uh, surface viral content for other publishers.
3: Yeah. So we we built the the Buzzfeed network, which was a little code that lived on other sites, yeah. and would track when something was starting to go viral and, and really the idea the early idea of BuzzFeed was that we weren't an editorial business and part of the reason for that was HuffPost had editors and so I didn't you know couldn't really uh, or didn't want to compete directly with another company and so maybe I, I sort of deluded myself that BuzzFeed should be a pure tech company and not have but editors That you weren't
2: creating another publishing business
3: Yeah and, and, and I think But you did I ended up doing that, you know, after Huffington Post, after Huffington Post sold to AOL and I wasn't conflicted and I was focused on, you know, on BuzzFeed and I could see things more clearly because I didn't have my, you know, I wasn't trying to understand and think about two totally different organizations. So, so but at the time the idea was we were a pure tech company, we had some editorial people as test pilots to try out technology and that we would maybe power other sites. Um, and so we, we came very close to signing a deal um, with the Washington Post uh, where we would power their site. Um, we um, And then we ended up not doing it because by the time the deal was signed, we had grown so much as a site, we realized that we, we should focus on growing BuzzFeed and not other publisher sites. We had this network where we had a little code that lived on um, a bunch of different popular popular websites, and we would send them an alert when something started to go viral on their site. And So the idea was it was a a trend detection technology that any publisher could use. Huffington Post used it. The New York Times used it. The Daily Mail used it. Fox News used it. We had, we had a lot of the biggest publishers on the web. You users, made a lot of
2: content. By the way, it turns out this one particular piece of content is doing great. You should do something with it.
3: Yeah. And it was based on this idea that you shouldn't just look at what you're promoting. You should look at how much viral traffic is going to a piece of content because that's really what growth is. You can promote a piece of content a lot, but if nobody's sharing it, if it's not spreading on its own, then that's not really where you should focus. And so that, that what really grew a lot, and we had um, a, a, a part of the front page of BuzzFeed were the most viral things from all these publishing partners. What happened was BuzzFeed started to get really big, and then publishers started to pull the code. So the New York Times was like, "Why are we? Why are we having BuzzFeed? You know, you're not just a small little tech company. You're not Switzerland. You're, you, you know, why are we letting you have, you know, um, access to all of the data of of what's trending on the New York Times?" You know, and we would say, well, look, we 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 have a have a, a firewall. We're not looking at all your data. We're only looking at the most popular things that trigger. The most popular things that trigger are also kind of obvious because they're all, they're all over the place, and so we're not actually getting anything proprietary. And you're getting access to this nice um, tool. But you know, o- over time, it became clear that it, you can't really be in the analytics and optimization business and be. Building your own content company at the same time. And so we, we ended up shut, making the decision to shut down the, that network and, and focusing all of our tech development not just on our own site.
2: Um, and, and so I'm just trying to figure out at what, what point. Did you say, oh, this is the business, the business we're gonna do is some version of creating content that's meant to be shared socially. that's the core of it as opposed to doing SEO, which is what you've done at, at Huffington Post making things for Google. We're gonna make things for Facebook just for, for simplicity's sake. Um, when did that sort of was that always the idea from the get-go or did that did you evolve to that point?
3: It, it was always what my interest was even before Huffpost, you know the the Nike email and black people love us and the rejection line. We're all social, right? That's your people, line. Yeah, people shared um, because they thought they were funny or provocative or interesting. And 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 that I and, and I, you know had Duncan Watts, who's, who uh, as our science advisor, who's figured out the mathematics of six degrees of separation and small worlds. And I was interested in network science, network theory. How do things spread through word of mouth? How do things uh, spread through networks? The problem was that you couldn't actually build a big site based on 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 sharing. So when we started... Because? When we started... Well, because when we started Huffington Post, Facebook was what, you know, a way to organize the parties for, you know... Because
2: there was no mechanism to do the share. I mean, they were sharing, right? There was email and... Yeah. So there, were,
3: there was email and it was this very disorganized thing, right? So so if you saw... If, if there was a, a funny article, you know, you'd get 20 emails... It's, right you know, and so or a bad you, rumor
2: about a shooting at a mall at Halloween. Yeah, so
3: you'd get you get you know the same person would get twenty seven emails, and then uh, now on Facebook you say twenty seven of your friends shared this, you get it once. And so what ended up happening was email. In the early days, there was a period where people would forward to their whole inbox, but then that started to get shut down because it it was a broken dynamic for social. And so there wasn't really the 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 tech platforms to enable social distribution. Um, and mobile, you know, the iPhone didn't exist when we first right. started BuzzFeed. And so, you know, mobile and social were these two huge things that enabled these ideas to actually work. So the ideas about network and network science and six degrees of separation and those kind and of And was that clear ideas. to
2: you as you were watching Facebook grow and move from, you know, an Ivy League thing to a college thing, that something that opened up to the entire world? You're saying, oh, this is what's going to make this uh, this concept possible.
3: Yeah, it's it became clear along the way. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know... If how far ahead we were, but it was something that we it was something that we wanted to do you know before there was a way to do it right so when um, when
2: Facebook started to rise, it oh, this is the thing that's going to make this possible
3: yeah, facebook and twitter and and stumble upon, and i mean there were you know there were any time there was there there were social dynamics that could result in cascades that would allow. For diffusion of content. We were excited and we embraced it. We did, however, with BuzzFeed, try to hedge and also do search. And that turned out to be problematic. It's very hard to think from the worldview of search and the worldview of social at the same time. And it wasn't, it was a bug in Google that all de-indexed BuzzFeed from search that actually caused us to, to go all in on social. Because it was still social, the social web wasn't very developed. We still got the the biggest referral of traffic was search and then all our search disappeared overnight and we didn't know why and we investigated and we were we were did we do something wrong and we thought we must have done something wrong because we were constantly exper- experimenting we had scrapers that would you know grab left wing content and right wing content and put it together in a left first right thing we had uh um we had uh people in the community would post something like download a movie for free and it would get all the search traffic, and then we would, what we call jacking, because the guy who did it was named Jack, we would <laughs> we would change it into the best article about the movie and pull the link to the pirate si- pirating site, but keep the page up. <laughs> um, and so
2: something in there pissed off Google. So
3: we thought one of those things pissed off Google. It turned out what it, what the problem actually was, and it took forever to actually get to Matt Cutts and go through like investors and try to figure this out. Um, that we were embedding, when we would embed, um, for Java, JavaScript security, we would embed uh, media through a different domain that was BuzzFeed instead of BuzzFeed. And Google thought that was a confusingly similar domain, and some people inject, uh, inject uh, you know, um, bad Code so th-
2: google th- mistakenly punished you for malware which you weren't doing yes. and f- forced you to facebook and that's how history was made
3: and and so then we said you know what forget google like when they finally figured it out it was a bug we we're like you know before we figured it out it was a bug it was like look social's the future it's super small now we're not actually getting that much traffic from it but we can't depend on google because like they're taking they took all our traffic away focus on social focus on social don't try to hedge between the two um, and that actually turned out to be a good thing in retrospect, but it was a terrible month and a half until we you know, figured it out.
2: I want to keep going on this history lesson, but first, Kara Swisher wants to tell us about Audible, where we can probably learn about other kinds of history. So let's hang on for one second.
0: If you're always on the go like myself and don't have time to sit down and read, Audible.com is a great source to be able to catch up on the latest bestsellers. Listen to it while on the road or at the gym. Audible.com is a leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the internet. Audible Contact includes more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Audible carries audiobooks in every genre imaginable, business, classics, history, and self-development, just to name a few. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com decode and choose from over 180,000 audio programs Download a title free and start listening. I'm now listening to Ron Chernow's Hamilton after I saw the amazing musical on Broadway this week. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash decode. That's audible.com slash decode and get started today.
2: Welcome back. We're talking to Jonah Peretti at BuzzFeed. Uh, Joni, you were just walking me through every single day in the history of BuzzFeed's history. <laughs> um, just redundant. But, but I, I think it's interesting because I, th- I think a lot of people sort of, well, we tend to we don't look back a lot, right? In the internet business, we look forward. We imagine what things might look like. I think going back is occasionally helpful. Um,
3: well, one one nice thing yeah. is that we were doing a lot of this in obscurity, so we could experiment and we could learn. And when you see companies that instantly become hot companies, it's very hard because you're you, you, you're in the spotlight trying to try new things and experiment before you figure things out. We had you know three years of having not had anything not being inarticulate not being able to explain what we were doing and trying lots of things and trying to figure out right you had a little bit
2: of a profile you were the viral guy but i think probably outside of new york and very sort of specific sort of websites most people didn't know about you or buzzfeed
3: yeah you kind of want a small group of people to care about what you're doing so you have people using your service and are you working on
2: a splinter site right now so you can test out the next thing in obscurity
3: we are working on many different Splinter sites as part of BuzzFeed. I mean, that's partly how we crack new markets. We're we're always looking for new new opportunities and and new approaches, new platforms. Um, and so re- re- replicating that is within BuzzFeed is something that is hugely important. To oh, so
2: you gave me a serious question, a serious answer. I was giving you a joke question. Oh, sorry.
3: That's all right. You know. um, <laughs> I want to ask you
2: about the way the company's iterated over time. So you know, when, when I first met you, you were a viral guy and trying out different things, and you were talking about you know projects you did where you scraped together content from the web and assembled it. And at some point, you made this conscious effort to say, In addition to that, in addition to things that are social, we also want to start paying to create our own content, and then eventually paying to create sort of traditional news. What what got you to and then hired Ben Smith, who was then at Politico. What what prompted you to to hire Ben and sort of invest a lot of resources into creating your own stuff?
3: There were two things. The first was, Huffington Post sold to AOL, and I stopped working at Huffington Post after you know at at the at the point of the sale. And that meant that I could look at BuzzFeed with fresh eyes and say, what what should BuzzFeed be, be doing? And and not have, you know, more than half of my idle thoughts thinking about another company. Um, and so that led me to, to, to be to be more excited about hiring an editorial team. And we had an editorial team at T, at Huffington Post and I, I got that enjoyment from being involved with the edit team at Huffington Post. And, and so now that I was no longer at Huffington Post, it felt I- exciting to do that at, at BuzzFeed. The other thing is we, that we were focused on the social web and sharing, and it and it wasn't really possible to... Do news content on Facebook and Twitter when we started because Twitter was what you had for lunch and Facebook was internet memes and humor and comedy and and so we started to see that changing and it and we were actually a little behind Pe- news was people were starting to share news on Facebook and Twitter, and we didn't have a way to make news. I mean, But, way but to, why, way to why did you news. feel
2: you had to make it? I mean, there's still a lot of successful companies right now on Facebook who don't make anything or they barely make anything. They take other people's things and sort of repopulate them. And that's what you guys were doing for a long time too. This is a thing we found. You still do it to some degree. Um, why Why pay people to make things from scratch?
3: People like to share and people want to share the authoritative, original story. So that's that's part of it. Another part of it is making things allows you to, to operate cross-platform much better, you know, because you can, if you have original content, you can adapt that content for lots of different platforms and places and countries. Um, also, it's just a lot more rewarding and more Fun and more interesting to have reporters around the world covering covering stories and have people doing doing original work instead of derivative work. And
2: what did your investors say when you said I'm going to spend money having people go to the Ukraine or wherever to create stuff because it's more fun?
3: I, I mean, I, I, we have investors who've been in the news business. You know, Eric Hippo. I mean, he's more he's more. Uh, Direct about these things than I am maybe, but you know, he's Eric is is like there's a lot of money in news, you know, he and people who read news are are educated and smart and they're the best consumers and you know, so so I think that it depends on who you, which board member you'd ask or which investor you'd ask, but but um, the varying degrees they all have. Have a think think news can be both a good business and also also something that is is exciting. Because there was area. a
2: period where you guys were making this pronounced move into news, and I thought, oh, I've seen this playbook before. This is the Huffington Post. You you were at Huffington Post. Ken Larry, your chairman, was was co-founder of the Huffington Post. Eric Hippo was there, and that playbook was we're going to get a lot of free content, we're going to get a lot of cheaply made content, we're going to go hire some big names from real newspapers, and that will help us sort of raise our profile, maybe help it. Maybe, maybe it's easier to sell ads that way, get entree to certain things. And I assumed you were doing the same thing at, at BuzzFeed, that this was sort of a little bit for show, and the bulk of the business was still going to be cat pictures or whatever the, the derogatory term for listicles was at the time. Hmm. Um, were you guys thinking about the fact that it looked the same?
3: I don't, not really. I mean, I think part of it is, is I had a connection with Ben and he, he had a vision to build something. And a, a big part of running the company is, is finding people where you have a aligned vision and they're going to build something great. And I, I think Ben shaped a lot of, you know, what we, what we built on the, on the news side. I mean,
2: how much of the, the emphasis on crea- that creation of new news, on, on hiring all these people, on really committing to going out and creating your own stuff, uh, was stuff that you thought about in advance of hiring Ben, and how much of it is you hired Ben, Ben wanted to do it, you guys did more of it. How much of this is sort of like iterative versus planned?
3: I mean, a lot. Of, uh, I think the planned part is a broad strategic direction, and all the specifics are very iterative. And, and, you so, know, so like, we you know, Ben, I don't think if you, you know, for all of us, it's been kind of remarkable and unexpected where the company has ended up. And I think if you said to Ben when he joined, you know, a little over three years ago now that he was going to have foreign correspondents around the world and that there would be have a long form team and that we'd we'd have a, a San Francisco bureau and a and D.C. bureau and reporters in a bunch of different markets making local content for India and Australia and Europe and I I don't think he would have said oh yeah that's definitely where this is all headed but we've been able to build a good business and we've been able to to attract really amazing People on the edit, on the edit side, so great reporters, great entertainers, right. great storytellers, and and they've been able to really deliver, and that's resulted in lots of scale, and it's been good for our brand, but it's also been good for our growth and our distribution and, and our uh, revenue.
2: And a similar question about say Frank and Video, right? A few years ago, you didn't you hadn't hired say and Video didn't really exist at BuzzFeed, and now it's. I think really sort of one of the major driving forces of the, of the company, maybe the driving force. of The company. Did you see that video was going to be huge for you a couple of years ago, and, and this was always planned out, or, or I got the sense that you hired Zay almost as a favor, uh, just to you know, give him <laughs> something to do, uh, and now he's got four acres out in LA and he's building studios and making TV shows. Was that? Did you see that, or, or did you happen into it?
3: Well, I, I was always a fan of Zay's work. I mean, Zay has had a, a influence on on web video far beyond any value he's captured you know he he's he, so many of the conventions that YouTube stars use were created by Zay when he made his year-long show um, which which I don't know if you saw the mm-hmm. show um, and and so many ideas that, that that he's developed over the years have ended up being very influential and so the thought was, Zay was if you had a phenomenal talent like that, and you, we worked together to figure out how to capture the value that his his very creative and analytical mind <laughs> produces, that you could build something big. That that was really the idea. And, and did that, you
2: imagine it would be the size that it is now, or do you thought, oh, this is there's a thing. We'll we'll, we'll see what it turns into.
3: I, I would not have imagined how big it is. It's, it's phenomenal what he's built, and it's definitely beyond our expectations, and it's incredible. Um, but I always thought he could build something great if he had the right opportunity and the right um, context, and he's, he has.
2: Almost One of the extraordinary and really interesting things about what he's done, what you guys have done with, with, with video, is that almost all of that success happens outside of BuzzFeed. It happens on YouTube. It happens on Facebook. I assume it'll happen on Snapchat. We talked about this in March, that you're pushing the whole company this way, sort of distributed content. Um, and now it's a bit of conventional wisdom that a lot of people want to start pushing stuff out onto other sites that aren't their own. I think Business Insider just launched an entire site de- dedicated to that idea. We talked about it in March. Um, is this evolving the way you imagined it would, or is anything not working?
3: Yeah. I mean, it. It. it, it a few things. So. We talked before about the idea of the vertically integrated company, which was how BuzzFeed started, where we made our whole CMS yep. and made the content and, and had our full own brand, stack. the full, sort of full stack, moving to the network integrated model where we're publishing on lots of different platforms and we just care about getting the data back to help us optimize. Now we're starting to see the relationship between all the different places. So, so really building out an intelligent network where if we see something works well on Instagram It can be adapted for Snapchat. If we see something works well as a post, it can be adapted as a video. If something works well in the UK, it can be adapted for Australia. So we start to see that being in many markets and being on many platforms lets us learn more. And when we learn more, we can make better media across the entire network. So the the nodes of the network are very autonomous, but they share learnings back with a larger network. And that piece of it um, has been really the key to it. Um, and it gives us an advantage relative to a company that's just in one country, or a country, or a company that's just in one platform, because they're not able to learn as much from all the different ways that they're making content, all the different audiences that they engage with every day. So that that has been huge. It's also really transformed. I think I have, I think I have some some. These are like rough, unvetted numbers that I just. You got. You can't
2: see it because it's a podcast, but Jonah's consulting I, his phone.
3: Um, but if you look at like. The, this is total views of content across BuzzFeed site, apps, and and distributed around the web. You can see the the percentages are just very different than you would seen a you know Jonah's now
2: showing and, me a phone. I'm not sure what number you, I'm supposed to look at. What's you you tell me what's the most impressive number here or surprising? I mean, so number?
3: so you know, 23. So so these these numbers are, are like pretty rough, and I can uh-huh. actually get you you know better ones, but uh, or more vetted ones, but the. You know, twenty three percent of our traffic of our views are direct to our site or to our apps. Fourteen um, percent are YouTube views, meaning meaning content view on YouTube. Two um, percent Google search to our site. Six percent Facebook traffic to the site. Twenty seven percent is Facebook native video. Four percent images on Facebook. Twenty one percent Snapchat content views. Your um,
2: Snapchat is already making up twenty one percent of your of, the, your of the
3: content views, uh, and then and then views from other platforms like the Pinterest and Twitter like four percent, and then there, there may be a couple things that aren't included here. But this is just sort of a rough ra- rundown of the diversity of where people are seeing our content. And did you why. say Snapchat's
2: already twenty one percent?
3: That was August number. And then, of- so
2: that's be- and you guys used to discover. So that even prior to sort of having a formal working relationship with
3: them, they were they were generating a ton of content views. So that this is this is this includes Discover. Okay. Yeah. But, you know, and, and all views aren't created equally, some can monetize better, some can, you know, it, so it, it's not like a perfect apples to apples comparison, but when you look at what does a distributed media company look like, you're seeing views happen on many platforms, some owned and operated our site, our apps, um, some distributed like Snapchat discover, Facebook video, YouTube. Um, and then, perhaps, in the near future, some on traditional linear platforms like TV or theatrical fil- release of a film or, or other other platforms like that.
2: Full circle, how long before we see the first uh, BuzzFeed film or TV show?
3: Um, I mean, when it's ready. I don't know yet.
2: <laughs> I'm just going to stare at Joan until he gives me a date.
3: <laughs> I don't have a date, so I can't give you one. But I bet.
2: I bet soon we'll see a movie. Uh
3: well, maybe. Well, I, I, it, it takes a long time to make movies. I mean, part of, part of it is is we don't want all of our executives to be distracted by the cycles of Hollywood, right? Where it's meeting after meeting and lots of deals and everything being negotiated and tons of haggling with talent and producers. And, and so in order for us to actually make things in that system, we need to have a, a relatively lower friction model for doing it where we Focus on the web, where we can iterate in a much tighter loops, and then extend to 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 us to a system where we have partners in place to help us do these things. So there's a lot of setup time, so I think you'll see it'll take longer than you might might think. But then once it's up and running, you might see more.
2: All right, I, I want to talk about the next BuzzFeed movie or TV show. That'll be a different a different <laughs> interview. Jonah Pretty thanks for your time.
3: Thank you.
0: Thanks, Peter. Jonah, that was fascinating. And now on to Too Embarrassed to Ask. Today's segment is brought to you by audible.com, which has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free audiobook of your choice at audible.com/decode. At its event last week, Apple announced new iPhones, a new iPad called the iPad Pro, a new Apple TV, and more. Here to talk about Apple's new product lineup and what it means is Lauren Good, senior editor at our sister site, The Verge. Welcome, Lauren.
4: Hi, Kara. That still sounds I know. The Verge.
0: I know. But we that's where say you we are, verge. so live with your new marriage. Um, <laughs> We were talking about the Apple event, which you were at this week, uh, covering it for The Verge and for us, too. We got lovely stuff from you from you and Walt. Um, talk to me a little bit about it. We're going to talk just about it. We're not going to have user questions, but there's all kinds of things that were brought up that I think would be interesting to the readers. of What, what it meant and whether it, so I've read some things that said it was like the greatest thing ever, others not so great, not so big. What is your assessment?
4: I think it's all a matter of expectations, and I think overall it was a pretty successful event for Apple. Why is that? Um, I think it kind of underscored, well, for a few reasons. Uh, I think everyone sort of got what they were expecting. Mm -hmm. Um, we were definitely expecting new iPhones, the iPhone 6 plus, uh, 6S line, excuse me. Once you get into 6S and 6S plus, it gets a little bit wordy. Right. So we saw iPhone 6S's. We saw a new Apple TV. We saw the iPad Pro, which had been long rumored, Mm -hmm. but no one was exactly sure whether or not it was happening. And Mm -hmm. a couple of other things, uh, as well. Um, and I think it really kind of underscored that Tim Cook is definitely a numbers guy. I mm-hmm. mean, these How things so? are going to sell. They're, I mean, there's uh, Apple has already said this week that they're anticipating that... Um, the 6S. This week, yeah, the 6S was going to outpace, I think, sales of the 6 for the first weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if he's necessarily a product visionary in the mm-hmm. way that Steve Jobs was. Um, and so a lot of things that we saw, like, maybe were new for Apple, but weren't necessarily new things, but I think that it's going to, these new products are going to help push Apple through The next, you know, three
0: to four quarters, and people are gonna they're gonna buy this stuff, right? So the overall event, uh, this is a this was a hardware event, correct? It was a hardware event. Yes. Okay. Which is in the fall. Yeah. This is pretty this pretty much on schedule for Apple. Right. Versus software events, which happen in the spring, where they upgrade things, and although usually at
4: the annual developers conference, we see a glimpse of the new software that they're going to be teasing out throughout the summer through you know private and public betas, and then they usually formally launch that new software. It's in, in the fall right. so they give developers a chance to see it in june and they say oh here's this cool you know cool new stuff you're gonna be able to work with on right. our devices and then they give developers some lead time to to actually build stuff and then usually you know
0: around this time it's starting it's starting to come out so i have a couple questions so how significant were the iphone upgrades from to the 6s and 6s plus if you looked at i don't them, feel like i'm going to upgrade you, just from you don't and you have now. your
4: uh, your giant tablet, my giant tablet yes. yes i love it um it's funny because I think Jimmy Kimmel did a video this week where they took the phones out on the street and asked people, like, can you tell which are the new iPhones from the old iPhones? Mm-hmm. And I don't think people can actually no. tell the difference. No. Well, there is a rose gold iPhone now. Okay. A.K.A. Pink. Okay. I don't care. Otherwise known as pink, but rose gold. So um, so aside from that, though, there, you, know, you would look at the phone and you, unless you were looking really closely, you wouldn't think there was anything different I mean, about that. It doesn't them. look different. There are a few new things okay. worth noting. Tell us. There's a new camera. Mm-hmm. An improved camera. All there's an right. the improved there selfie a camera. camera. All right. So now the front-facing camera is better, and there's also something called retina flash, which, mm-hmm. in short, is you have flash on your selfie camera now. Okay. So you can take great selfies. All right. Um, there's something called 3D Touch. Still hasn't sold me yet, Lauren. Yeah. I sold. Well, it's not my job to sell you, Cara. All right. Okay. It's my job to give it to you straight. Right, give it to me straight. Okay. There's something called 3D Touch, yeah. which is like Force Touch on other Apple devices. Mm-hmm. This allows you to press the screen of your new iPhone, provided mm-hmm. it's run- it's running iOS 9 and it's new hardware. Mm-hmm. And then from the app that you're pressing on, a little mini menu appears. So instead of actually opening your Mail app and going into Mail, you would just press on the Mail app and then this sub-menu of how many... Um, Messages you have, right, for example, cool. would appear. Which like, I can't Instagram. do on my phone now, right? Correct. Yeah, and like right, right now, it's not it's not available uh, for Instagram. But the idea is like you would press on in the Instagram app, and it would give you a quick preview of the photos uh-huh. that are appearing on your Instagram, rather than having to okay, actually cool. go and open the app. I'll give that a cool. So phone yeah, zone. and it's a it's a hardware and software combination. There's a, a now a, a taptic glass. engine running. Right, right. There's an extra display. There's a taptic engine running in the phone. Mm-hmm. So that's something that's very specific. to I the heard 6S about Alan Charlie Rose. It was
0: a little too enthusiastic a tech reviewer was a little bit. It was Who almost is like this? an ad, I'm not saying. Oh, but it okay. was quite. He was a little he was as if he okay. was working for Apple oh, PR. If
4: I get that way no, you temper me. No, I will. I know. Okay. I want
0: you to give me some like why it's kind of stupid too.
4: Oh. Well, I mean the, the those I would say are the are the biggest the biggest changes. What about the thing before the picture? The live photos. Which kind of gave me the creeps yeah. I'll be honest kind of, with you. It's kind of it's kind of funny because Apple has taken, so something like uh what, uh the selfie cam. Mm-hmm. I mean it what they're calling it the retina Front right in a flash on the front-facing camera. Mm-hmm. This is so Apple. They give it this creative name. Mm-hmm. It's a cel- It's a selfie cam. Right. Okay. And then they and then live photos are kind of like gifs or gifs, however mm-hmm. you might say that, which everyone's been you know making and using and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But then Apple says. Their are live photos. <laughs> you know, so Apple has this great way of applying these new terms to people. I mean, they did this with retina display. So this is before, right? This is, is
0: Explain what it is, the photo. So you-
4: what happens is when you go to take a picture in live photo mode on your new iPhone, it starts to capture the image just about a second before it actually captures the still and a second afterwards. Right. So afterwards, you have the option of just viewing it or sharing it as a still image, a still 12 megapixel image. Or you can press on it and then it acts like a gif right basically is what right. it is and so you see people making goofy faces before they smile or you know your cat is playing with something and it's not just a still image it's actually see, i'm always
0: saying stop taking a fucking picture of me that's what i'm saying so i don't think it's going to be good for me Oh, because you're cursing just yes, beforehand. I'm cursing. Just it is going before. to capture that now. Okay, for, well, you know. I'm not going to have anyone take pictures. Then. <laughs> all right, is let's move on to Apple TV. So there's just a few things that are interesting around the u- upgrades. Correct? That ha-
4: yes. Are you going to get a new iPhone based on what I just told you? No, not at all. Thank all right, you very there
0: you much. Go. Um, is Apple TV uh, a game changer or is Apple just playing catch up?
4: Apple TV. Apple TV had not been upgraded in a while. No. It's funny. I got into this discussion with Neil I Patel, our editor in chief at The Verge, after mm-hmm. the event, and someone said. Should we upgrade to new Apple t- new Apple TV? And I said, if you have the old box and you love your Apple TV, to me, it's it's a hands down yes. Right. And he said, I th- I don't think so. And so we got into this discussion about w- w- why. And so I think, you know, it's got a faster processor now, which it yeah. was long overdue for. It it's has voice slow. integration, yeah. Siri integration. So yeah, now I you can say, that. Siri, I want yeah. to watch this or Siri, Comcast go back in has time. It. I never and used it. And Com- Actually, a lot of others. Ha- Amazon has this. Yeah, I don't care. Um and then, if you're into casual games on your TV, which I am not, but mm-hmm. Roku has done this as well. Apple TV has now introduced. Apple has introduced with Apple TV casual games on on the box. On the All right, you're not box. selling
0: me these items here, Lauren. What is going on? But, but if you will, it if, get me popcorn and soda because that's what I would need.
4: No, it won't. It's mm-hmm. not gonna. It's not gonna get you a beer from the fridge. I like. The, it's call, not, you the can call shop. the
0: Uber, which brings me the popcorn. Like <laughs> that can, would be useful.
4: You can. Uh, I don't know what the future of this is exactly but there was one demo during the event last week where they showed with guilt where yeah. you can buy stuff from guilt on your on your Apple when TV which is stuff, sort of like replicating the
0: Home shopping network. I just experience. gave you a jam. I just gave Apple a jam, and they're not acting upon it. So, so this is just—it's a better version of. It's Apple. a better version, and if you were looking, and they still do have version, quite the amount of stuff from Hollywood. They're still working that out. Right? They're
4: still working. Well, that is what we believe. I right. mean, it's been reported everything from delayed. Delay, Apple is delay. working with content partners directly. To Apple is. Potentially creating their own original content, which oh. I actually think would be a smart move. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of these things have been like more shows, by, but like it's, Amazon? it's just goes to prove that it's a lot harder to Are actually they work get the
0: Hollywood too. Oh dear, everybody is.
4: I mean, would would you do that if you were Apple?
0: I would if I was Apple because we're creative. I just worry when Google does it. That's all. Why. Because they'll just make horrible shows, but I'll, I'll watch them. You know what <laughs> you I might mean? might have like, to become a consultant Susan Wojcicki's of YouTube sure they said don't. they wouldn't, and I'm, I'm counting on that. <laughs> um, so this iPad Pro, I think, is the most exciting thing. I do think this is interesting. Would you get one? No, but lots of people around me want one. So they've talked about it. This is something that's exciting to people. Why would people want it or not want it?
4: The, interesting, the most interesting thing to me about iPad Pro and the announcement around iPad mm-hmm. Pro is that it was announced at a consumer event... But it's called the I and it was it was shown off with some consumer facing applications, Mm -hmm. like this Adobe Fix app that lets you lightly photoshop things. Yeah, right, the smile, smile Mm -hmm. gate, uh, RBF gate. And and uh and yet, like, I'm not quite sure who Apple is marketing this towards. I mean, is it for pros? Is it for – is Apple hoping that they're going to sell this directly through enterprise, you know, through these new mm-hmm. relationships that they've, with they've HP forged with and companies like IBM, right, and, and, IBM and Cisco and mm-hmm. stuff like that? Or is this – was it called the pro because it's just so souped up um, that they really feel some consumers will pay up to, you
0: know – it reminds me a lot of people like the Surface. It's like the Surface. It's their version of the Surface. That's what I see it as. Yes, you know. Yes,
4: in fact, there's a stylus and, a, and
0: an accessory. Yeah, keyboard so it's still that
4: which Steve Jobs well. said they would never have. He said they would never have it. And there it and is. The, and there it is. And it's called pencil. Mm-hmm. And, well, they then didn't call it and then and then there's a yeah, attachable keyboard mm-hmm. that um you know would remind you in some ways of the Microsoft Surface keyboard. Uh, and then the funny part was, so they announced all that. They said, here's a, here's a stylus, here's a keyboard. And people were thinking, oh, it's just like the surface. And then the first person they brought on stage to demo it was a Microsoft executive. Using In this office? kind of unintentional, yeah. uh, intentional sort of like, I, I don't know, maybe it was intentional, but like, it was like this nod to they Microsoft. They were thrilled to be there. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right,
0: right. It's been years. Yeah. And, so They uh, got to sell that office. You yeah.
4: Know? But it is, I mean, it is, uh.
0: Well, who is it aimed for? What do you, who do you think it's aimed to?
4: Uh. So I think that Apple, let's let's go back a little bit and talk about when, you know, iPhone first came out. iPhone was a pure consumer play. Mm-hmm. It was consumer play for years. And then people started liking their iPhone so much. And it, it, they were just so ubiquitous after a while that the B, the BYOD trend took place and people started bringing them into their offices. Mm-hmm. And at first, like, IT people, with you know, departments would say, no, we're not supporting these. And then eventually they had to cave. And so now, you know, iPhone is is... It's basically like what BlackBerry was. Because the iPad wasn't enough,
0: so they need something with keyboards. Is it going to kill off the uh, laptops now? I I think that's tough to say. I think there's always going to be a... uh, I know
4: some people have written about oh this is the demise of the Mac and the Mac is going away and eventually we're not gonna. I think there's the Mac still has a long tail. Really? In my personal opinion, I think some people. I mean, would you give up your your MacBook Air? Right I haven't now? seen this thing
0: yet. Yes, in this case, yes, if it's good enough. Yeah, because I can carry it's thinner to carry around, I guess, and if it's it has the same capabilities. And the whole problem with the Mac is you can't touch it. it I mean, you can't like swipe. Yeah, and you, can't, you can't, can't. There's no touch screen. There's no touch screen. There and is I'm actually the the touchscreen
4: on the iPad Pro is. Um, so first of all, the display is the highest resolution display of right. any anything that Apple makes, even right. more so than the MacBook Pro Retina. Mm-hmm. Um, and the display is also super sensitive, right. and that's partly because, I mean, now you're using it with the stylus, right? right? And so there can't be any latency when you're using that stylus, or it's going to feel awkward. Yeah, I but I think I replace my like laptop. Yeah, you would. Yes, but would you would you miss? So Apple's done a little bit with multitasking in iOS nine, but would mm-hmm. you miss the idea of having like multiple windows open? Because that's what I that's what I really like about using a a laptop, or if you want to call it a desktop, yeah. I, guess, yeah. I mean, having this the ability to manipulate windows. Um, yeah, you're right. Having multiple change. windows open. Right. Yep. That would be. I the mean, problem. I, th- I still think that's excellent for
0: productivity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. But they should fix that on the yeah. on the iPad. Yeah. So, yeah. so I mean, I, I or think have tablets... a touchscreen laptop. I'm not sure why they aren't doing that. That's just inexplicable to me.
4: Yeah. I mean, tap. You know, tablets are just. I don't think they've quite met expectations. And I think if you asked Apple about that right now, they'd say, no, we've sold many millions of them. Of course, they've met expectations. But mm-hmm. the truth is, is that they're on a different upgrade cycle from smartphones. Consumers are not upgrading them as much no. as they do their smartphones. If you look at the quarter over quarter, or even year over year numbers, um, you know, tablet sales are on the decline. Mm-hmm. And I think in general, they're kind of like Samsung just put out a flagship tablet, too. And it's yeah. just sort of I, 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 I tested it much, and right? I thought, mm, OK, and, you know, it's incrementally better than the last one. And so I think Apple with this one was really striving to do
0: something that would be different and exciting yeah if it became a replacement for a laptop then i would be happy you're right and you need windows open you're right right That's absolutely right all right lauren overall grade grades Thumbs up for thumb- the event. grade for the event
3: uh, presentation
0: i'd give it an a minus a minus overall overall and yes. for innovation uh
4: innovation i'd give it a b plus mm-hmm. a lot of the things were new for apple but not they for weren't else. new. Voice dictation on a set-top internet set-top box, um, games on Apple TV, a stylus, a keyboard, a phone with a better camera, uh, a selfie camera. These things are not new. But Apple does them in a way they feel is philosophically different from how other companies do them. And it, and some of these things were new for Apple. And are they ever going to fix Mail? <laughs>
0: Thank you. I'm going to say that as that a software time. question. Yeah. Well, I would like that to happen. <laughs> well, I can recommend use...
4: plenty of third-party mail yeah, there's clients software to you. I know, you. but I don't want to use them. I want to use
0: Apple's, but they don't have a good one. We'll Just get to send, that next Send it, it in. I will. Send
4: it in to them. I shall. Apple, I hope you're listening to Kara Swisher. Probably not. <laughs>
0: Probably not. Lauren, thank you very much. Thanks, Kara. And now part of the show we call Enough Said. Today on Enough Said, Jason Del Rey is joining us, as he has before, via Skype from New York. Jason's going to talk about payments and why many companies want to turn your smartphone into an extension of your wallet. Welcome back, Jason. Thanks, Kara. So tell us about where things stand in mobile payments. I mean, obviously, it's the center of all things payments, but give us an overview, and then I'll ask about specific things.
1: Sure. So when when we we're talking about mobile payments in retail stores, that really got its start in 2011 with Google Wallet, which it turns out now was just several years Um, ahead of the trend. Right. And which is why it didn't work. Right. Right. Which which is part of the the, there are a few reasons. But one reason is there were just not enough retail stores with the equipment to accept it. And also there were um, phone carriers who were actually blocking Google's access uh, from their phones because they were building a competing service. Not surprisingly, a joint venture of mobile carriers failed. And so that that has helped pave the way for Google to, to re-energize their effort with something called Android Pay. But really, Apple was the... Uh, Google did this a few years ago. It went nowhere. Apple came out last year with Apple Pay, mm-hmm. which is a way to tap and pay in stores just like Google Wallet was. Which
0: I do and use. Which I do use. I
3: never use
1: I do, Google Wallet. I, I, I do too. And it's, it works super well, but it was really... A lot of people will, in the industry will say it was... It was, it was not very breakthrough in terms of new technology. Um, but, but you know, like Apple was able to do, it captured the imagination of a lot of people in the industry. And Google, which had put its Google wallet basically on life support, according to people who used to work on it, um, they said, oh, crap, I guess we have to follow Apple's, uh, you know, path again. And so they just released something called Android Pay. So there's Apple Pay, Android Pay, and Samsung Pay, mm-hmm. and it's all—it's all a little ridiculous. They're—they're all ways to simply tap and pay in stores, but—but but each of the companies now thinks that the payments will become table stakes in terms of what consumers expect on phones. And so, even if it seems early now, they're all laying the groundwork for for competing. Okay, so so we have all these pays. Products.
0: We have Apple Pay, Samsung Pay. Google Pay or Android Pay, why don't we just have PayPay? Pay? Because that's what we just do now. We just like, you know what I mean? Like I pull out a credit card or I put I, out some cash I mean, occasionally if I remember to have cash.
1: That The biggest argument about why this trend should go away is that credit cards debit cards cash they're all pretty easy to use and they work pretty quickly so apple will say well our method is much more secure and after the year we had in 2013 and 14 with all the breaches in stores you know they had a pretty good argument that credit cards you know are are definitely not you know fraud proof but there are a new breed of credit cards you may carrie you may have gotten Mm -hmm, one in the with with a chip in with a chip in them and you're going to eventually have to you know slide those in and and uh and then sign instead of swiping and so that that'll be a bit more secure but but your point is well taken right now there's not a really good reason unless you're a, a door a tech dork like I am and you are mm-hmm. to to without your phone to to whip out your phone and um and pay with it now what i think happens is these companies start to build loyalty programs around um, around their initiatives right, around payments. All right, I like that. I like that yep. idea. So um, I get because, things. Right, because right right now, you know, we don't see Apple giving out any numbers of how many people are using Apple Pay, and there's there's probably a good reason for that. You know, plenty of people who who love payments and love the idea of this are using it, but it's it's far it's far from being mainstream, and I think we're probably a few years away from that.
0: So one of the we're going to have a lot of the people who have the hand the, the 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 bracelets that you wear. Those are starting to get to payments too, right? That you swipe your bracelet or your watch the,
1: or whatever. Right. So there was there was a partnership between American Express and Jawbone, I I believe. And um, yeah, wearable you know wearables and payments. People think or if phones are a natural match for it you could argue that but if if phones can have payments why why can't something that's even sort of you know easier to to tap against <laughs> a checkout equipment so yes there are plenty of people now who think that payments in wearables and and but but the main point is there is still not a really good reason to ditch your cards right now and and I'm each year, I'm looking for that breakthrough. Yeah, because I, I don't want
0: to give up my credit cards. I don't know why I should want to, right? Because I use my phone all the time.
1: Well, and the big thing with Apple Pay and and you know Android Pay, you can't you can only use them in a fraction of stores. And while the, that number is growing, it's still you know there's a lot of argument about how quickly it will. And so you need a card. You need a backup card. And so right. if you're gonna if you're gonna you know carry your wallet anyway. Um, you know, there a lot of people just don't see don't see the reason to to go through the trouble of pulling the phone what, out of the pocket.
0: What is the most out of line thing? I'm obviously, cash is done. Correct. No more cash. The most mobile of devices. I mean, ca-
1: ca- cash is pretty pretty dirty, right. In, gen- right. in, gen- in general, but and, and then
0: what yeah. do credit card companies do in this situation? Well, Where are well, they? so, so there's a lot of partnerings. There's a lot of yep, So
1: Apple. So you know, there are some people who are disappointed in Apple and Apple Pay because. Essentially, they built their product their technology right on top of the existing credit card networks and Some people were hoping Apple would circumvent go around the credit cards, create their own payment network, and really innovate either in terms of fees or i don 't know so, so you know whatever 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 apple fanboys want um, and so, credit card networks have been very happy, for the most part, with what's happened because this is just another use case of using the same account. You know, you're going to get charged the same late fees mm-hmm. um, for your payments with Apple Pay. And so, they, they, m- the way mobile payments has sh- shaken out so far is is they're 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 very okay with. Now, the thing to look for five years down the line is yeah. Apple does Apple get a little more aggressive? And try to create its own payment network. What do you think? Um, yes, I think. I, <laughs> I'm sorry, I just answer that for you. Yeah, you, I, I missed your – Yes, uh, yes, I'm they will. You said,
0: yes, they will. So will Google.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think, I think, um, I think people inside the credit card companies are not do not think this time will last forever as it stands right now.
0: Right. Last question: What's the most unusual payment thing going on now? Do you see, or what's something you'd like to see?
1: Hmm. Well, there was talk about paying with Bitcoin in stores, but I mean, sort of uh, those those, up, head, but... those headlines evaporated a year ago. Um, I still Coin Card, which was this all-in-one credit card, yeah, that guy. that that it it you know they've had some issues. I I wrote about the problems I had with it. They they haven't talked about this a lot, but they they're working in the background to try to be the technology provider that wearable companies can plug into to make their wearables like turn on payments. Right. So that the thinking is Jawbone's not a payments company, so why should they try to specialize in it when coin has you know, spent a couple of years going at this, so I think in the next year you're going to see them maybe maybe strike a couple of partnerships with wearable companies, and and maybe even you know maybe we'll see them give up on their all-in-one credit card and move wholly in that direction.
0: Interesting. I'm going to start paying with giant sacks of gold. That's my new
1: new you, situation. I, yeah. I'm sure you have plenty of. That.
0: I I'm going. I do. I have it in my in my gold cave. Um, Jason, thank you so much. We'll see you at Code Mobile, which takes place October 7th and 8th. We're going to be doing a lot of interviews and talking about where payments are going. Thanks for listening. This has been Recode Decode, hosted by me, Kara Swisher. If you like what you've heard, subscribe on iTunes and let us know what you think. Next week in the red chair, Microsoft Executive Vice President Peggy Johnson, who's in charge of acquisitions and partnerships. See you later.
1: This has been Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher. For more hard-hitting interviews with insiders from the worlds of tech, media, and politics, subscribe to Recode Replay on iTunes. Featuring candid conversations with leading voices like Snapchat CEO Evan Spiegel, Uber founder Travis Kalanick, reality star Kim Kardashian, Shark Tank host Mark Cuban, and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton, President Obama, and more. They're all on Recode Replay. Thanks for tuning in.